You can turn to Luke chapter 9. So we pick up our, our journey through the first 50 verses of Luke 9. Woven through this passage is the two questions, who is Jesus and what is, his, what is a disciple? Or we could say who are his disciples? I'm going to jump across the feeding of the 5,000 this week. We ended at verse 17. Or we end at verse 9. I'm going to jump across the feeding of the 5,000, and we're going to look at 18 to 27 this morning uh, with those two questions in mind. And then we'll, a couple of weeks, we'll come back and look at the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going to begin in verse 18 and read through verse 27, and we'll pray and ask the Lord to help us before we look at the passage. Verse 18 of Luke 9. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's our passage from this, for this morning from the Word. Let's pray uh, before we look at it more closely. Our fathers, we've both heard, read that the gates of hell will not prevail, and then we've sung those words We're thankful for your promises. That no matter what it seems, whether in our life, in our families, in our 
cities in our country. The church will prevail. And Father, as we think about our own personal lives, we are grateful that the promise will stand that the church will fail in times in spite of us. We thank you that the gospel has come to those who are your people. We thank you that it has spread throughout the towns and the states across the oceans to the lands far away that you are making disciples of all the nations through the spread of the gospel. Father, whether it be right here in this church, the churches that we know around here, our friends who, Lord, are also gathered this morning in worship of you and to hear your word. Lord, it's spread to south to Ecuador, the places we as providence have been sent and had the privilege to minister. We pray for Jorge down there as he is training pastors. Or has gone eastward to Spain where Martin Risley and his family Father, are taking your gospel to the Spanish people in the south end of that country. Lord, that has continued into the Philippines where Rusty and Mila have come from and now our reach has gone back into the Philippines and we pray for the church in Santiago Lord, that the gospel would continue to shine there. And on into Papua New Guinea, where the Housleys have ministered for all these years, and we've been privileged to hear the spread of the gospel like wildfire through the tribal peoples, ending up now in a school to to educate those young people in those villages. Lord, most of us have not gone, but most of us have prayed for these folks. And those of us who are in Christ, you have called us to make disciples wherever we are. Others, we read as we hear, as we think about 
the Lord Jesus in his ministry while on earth, preparing his disciples and calling them to a life of denial of themselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put ourselves in their place as we walk, as we drive, as we ride the streets and paths of our lives, that we would be faithful disciples. We ask this, that Jesus Christ might be glorified, that, Father, you might be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verses 18 to 22, the question comes up again, who is Jesus? Last week, we saw Herod, who uh, was asking the question, who is this about whom I hear such things? And of course, the answer is Jesus Christ. Here in verses 18 to 22, the same question is asked, except it's asked by Jesus himself. uh, He begins, this passage begins, interestingly enough, now it happened that he was praying alone. Only one of the commentators that I looked at this week mentioned the fact that he was praying and he was praying alone. Campbell Morgan, who uh, is in the church, was in the church in London uh, that Lord Jones, Martin Lord Jones was in, he says it's very significant that it says Jesus was praying alone. He said he always prays alone. When you see Jesus, he's in the He goes to a quiet place, and as he's praying alone, people show up. Campbell Morgan says he never really prayed in the fellowship of his disciples because he prayed on a different level. Uh, We come to God in prayer. requiring or recognizing our need for a mediator. We come to God in prayer, confessing our sins. Jesus never came that way in prayer to his heavenly father. He had no sins to confess. He needed no mediator. He was God himself as he came to the father. And so as he's praying alone, the disciples show up. They were with him, it says. And so Jesus asked them a question. What's the word on the streets? Uh, Who do they say I am out there? And the same thing that Herod had heard previously in the last section, they say, well, the word is, it's, uh, the rumors are, notice, who did the crowd say I am? They answered John the Baptist, Elijah, other prophets. 
Those are the same words. Those were the same rumors. They heard them. Herod heard them. It caused great anxiety in Herod. Uh, But Lord Jesus really doesn't care what they say about him. He knows what they're saying about him. But what he's doing here is he is drawing a contrast between what the world is saying about who he is and what his disciples are saying about who he is. And so he says, who do they say I am? Who do the crowd say I am? And then he said to them, but who do you say I am? That's nice to know what they're saying out there, and it's okay that you uh, have taken your polls and the poll results are in, and it's some for John the Baptist, some for Jeremiah, some for other prophets. Uh, but who is it, he says, do you say I am? And so the question doesn't just come to the 12 disciples, that comes to all of us. Who do you say he is? Who is it that Jesus is to you? Jesus... Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? And here's the question that is going to come up. Would you die for what you say you believe? It's hard to really think about that, isn't it? And when we're in no danger yet, um, We're really in no danger for dying for the faith. But if they they make it a crime, you know, the people on the streets already call us, call it a hate crime when we say Jesus is the only way. But if they, but that's not the law. If they were to make it a law, how would you respond? If they made it a crime to declare Jesus is the only way, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you continue to live as you are right now and be willing to die for that? Jesus says to the twelve, who do you say? And there's only one answer that uh, lead to this life-yielding conviction, and that is what Peter says, the Christ of God, or as the Matthew records, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You, Jesus, are the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one that throughout all of Israel's history Uh, They've been waiting for this one man. You're the one. You are him. He, you are he, him. Uh, You're the prophet, the one who would bring the full and final revelation that John lays out in chapter 1 of his gospel. You are the priest, the one who will bring final redemption. You are the king, the one who will rule and reign as an absolute monarch over the world. 
over the peoples, over the nations. If we were to study a little closer Israel in Jesus' day, the prophetic ministry and the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus had been essentially forgotten. Uh, overshadowed by their emphasis upon his ministry as king, looking for the Messiah to come and vanquish the Roman hold upon them as a people. And so here Peter, in his normal and brash, if you will, brushed away, he was saying to Jesus, you're the promised, you're the waited for prophet, priest, and king. You've now come from God. You're the revealer. You're the redeemer. You are the ruler over the world. You are the one to whom Moses pointed. Jeremiah, Elijah, John. And so if Herod's perspective and the people, the perspective of the people on the street was the majority report, uh, Peter's statement here regarding uh, or representing the twelve as their spokesman is the minority opinion. You are the Christ of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Certainly a minority report when these disciples were being gathered together with Jesus. And certainly the minority report today. The rep- it was the situation in Athens, you know, as Paul went to Athens and he praised the people in one sense for being very religious you have all these idols and all these temples. You even got, have one to cover your bases. You have the uh, 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 temple to the unknown God, the one that you maybe don't even know about. And then he goes and explains to them the one true God, the creator of everyone, the one in whom everyone's breath is in his hand says, now this Creator, this God, commands all men everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day when He will judge the world. And it will be by a man whom He has appointed. And He has given proof that that is true by raising Him from the dead. Most of the people in Athens said nonsense. Uh, Hogwash, that's not true. They mocked him. Some said, oh, let's talk about this tomorrow or some other day when it's a little more convenient. And a very few believed the gospel and were saved. And the question comes, why did so few believe the gospel? Why did so few listen to the, as we know it, the greatest preacher of the day, Paul. And yet few believe. 
Well, Jesus told Peter, why? Flesh and blood has not revealed that. But my Father in heaven. Peter only knew that truth because God had revealed it to him. Not simply that he had seen Jesus work. He'd heard Jesus teach. And by deductive reasoning, he said, that's the most logical thing I've ever heard. And therefore, I buy that. That was not why Peter came to that. He was given the same revelation that were given, uh, that the angels gave to the shepherds. Back in chapter 2, the angels came to the shepherds. Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. And then Simeon was given uh, a promise from God that he would see the Christ, he would see the Messiah before he dies. And as they bring and present Jesus in the temple as a young baby, he says, I can die now. God has fulfilled this promise to me. So some 30 years before this, God had revealed Jesus as the Christ to the shepherds, and to Simeon through the angels. Now he's revealed it to Peter. And Jesus' miracles and teaching do confirm Peter's confession to be the truth. Jesus is beyond all the prophets. He's not one among many. But this is something that the the disciples need to learn more about. Uh, We'll see next week in the Transfiguration that, the Lord, that Jesus continues to teach them who He is. They're not yet ready to go on the final journey. And so He will continue to teach them. Matthew says that when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that the church is built upon the foundation of that confession. And that's why the gates of hell will not prevail as the church goes forward. Herod tried to stop the gospel. He thought he had silenced the message when he chopped off John's head. But a couple hundred years, a hundred or so years later, uh, Tertullian says, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. As the church goes forward, the gates of hell will be stormed. Maybe not visibly as, as, as tons of people are being saved at once. One by one, the gates of hell are being destroyed. They are not able to prevail against the Word of God. The church will stand. And these disciples are standing against the tide of the culture in their confession. In one sense, 
chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 51 says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and the rest of Luke is about that. In one sense, he's already set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he's preparing these disciples uh, for uh, this journey. The ultimate destination will be the old rugged cross of Calvary. And so he's establishing for his own, for his 12 in particular, uh, who he is. And Peter's confession con- is contrast in contrast to the unsure thoughts of the people. Who did the people, well, this, that, uh, they're not sure. In contrast to that, Peter says, you are the Christ. Gives confidence to the disciples as they uh, begin this final journey. And so for us, it's never enough to know uh, what others are saying about Jesus. You might can pass a theology test. You might can go to Corey's class, his Bible Institute class, and pass his quizzes. Uh, Maybe. You might can give a good answer in Sunday school when uh, Corey teaches or Alan teaches or whoever's teaching in Craig's history class. You may have the answer to the question. And you may have read all the Puritan paperbacks on the shelf there in the library. You could still be an unbeliever, not a Christian. The answer who do you say Jesus is must be your a personal discovery that Christ is God as the Lord reveals Himself to you. You know, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he didn't say, I know what I believed. He says, I know in whom I have believed. Being a disciple is not just reciting the truth, a creed, uh, uh, giving a catechism answer. It's knowing a person. It's knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And these 12 needed to discover that truth. They need to be sure they know who Christ is. But they also need to understand what it means. And they weren't ready for that yet. After Peter says this, and Peter answered the Christ of God there at the end of verse 21-22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. I'll just stop at 21 for right now. Is that not strange? This grand discovery on which the church is going to be founded. Christ the cornerstone, the apostles, and that confession being the foundation of the church. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. He strictly charged them. That, Luke uses that word, strict, strictly charged, as one Greek word. Luke uses it 12 times. Ten times in our ESV, it's translated rebuked. So they gave the right answer, and Jesus rebuked them. He charged them, 
and commanded them to tell this to no one. Um, They didn't know yet what they didn't know. Jesus, as the Messiah, is the conquering and the reigning King who was promised to come and fulfill all of God's uh, covenants. He would sit on the throne of David. But that was not yet. All that was not yet. So Jesus silenced any proclamation here that Jesus is the Messiah because they need to be reminded what they had ignored That shame and suffering and rejection. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. They didn't know that they didn't know. They didn't know that they had missed a very important part of the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus. And they needed to be reminded and taught about that before. He's the Christ of God, but He's also the Son of Man who will be betrayed by His own people, by the leaders of His own religion, by one of His own disciples. He'll be delivered into the hands of sinners, these chief priests, elders, and scribes, and they will diligently in unity and in concert conspire to bring him to death. He'll be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's not only the Christ of God, he's also the Son of Man who come to seek and to save that which was lost, to redeem Sinful mankind. To give his life a ransom, and then and only then will he be able to sit on his throne, on the glorious throne. And all this is God-ordained. It must take place. He must suffer and die. And so he says, no public talk about me being the Messiah yet until you understand what that signifies. This is the first mention of uh, suffering and death and resurrection in Luke. The Christ of God must suffer, be killed, raised on the third day. You remember how Peter responded to that? To show why Jesus didn't want them talking about it. What did Peter do? He took him off to the side. Jesus rebuked them about not speaking, and so Peter pulls him off to the side and rebukes Jesus. Not on my watch will you die. Not as long as I'm around, you're not going to die. Therefore, Jesus says, let's don't talk about this publicly, okay? You don't get it yet. You're missing what this is all about. You need to learn more. 
And that's why they're to be silent. Their confession was right, but they didn't understand enough. And so he had more, the Lord Jesus had more teaching to do. When he uh, predicts his death again in, in chapter 9, verse 45, they did not understand this saying. Uh, they just don't understand. Don't understand yet. They're not ready to proclaim him. They have incomplete information or at least incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. They have no clear understanding of how their Messiah, as a prophet, would reveal the truth. No clear understanding of how, as their priest, he would become their redeemer. And he begins to tell them about that. And Peter just drags him off to the side and said, no way. Satan has hold of some of Peter's thoughts. They had no idea how, as their king, he would rule. And so Jesus now, who am I? Who is Christ? He now wants to teach him or teaches them what is a disciple. Verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If their master is headed for suffering, for rejection, his disciples should not expect uh, anything less. When they get to the upper room of the last week of the last night before Jesus is arrested, he'll tell them, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So Jesus in verse 23, and he said to all, he's not just speaking to the 12, he's speaking to anyone and everyone who is around. He says to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The requirements of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We know where that took went. And so we know what that means for us as disciples. We have to follow him. Be willing to follow him wherever If the answer is, who do you say I am? And they were to say, he's a wonderful teacher. They probably never would have been prepared to die for that, would they? Just a wonderful teacher. Or if we've seen all the good things you've done, Jesus, you've healed the blind, you've uh, healed the lame, the sick are made well, uh, the possessed are dispossessed, the the spirits are cast out. If that's all they said, we've seen you do these good and nice things, they'd never been prepared to die for that. I was reading, most of you know that I, uh, uh, you probably don't know any of his writings, but I have a (laughs) a friend in my books uh, F.W. Borum, I was reading, it was the mid-1800s, or during the 1800s, there was a race to get to the South Pole. Uh, 
I think a bird from Norway is the one who got there, but the Brits were just working very hard to be the first ones to get uh, to the South Pole, I'm sorry, well, to both poles, actually, but the South Pole in particular. Um, and, and when uh, Bird got there, uh, what the, uh, a man named Shackleton decided, he was going to be the first one representing Britain to go 2,000 miles from sea to sea across Antarctica, stopping by at the South Pole. And so Borum is writing about this story, and here's what he says. Let an explorer demonstrate to the world that the expedition he is about to lead will be dogged by death, and men will flock by the thousands to join his party. As uh, Shackleton was planning this, and 2,000-mile trek across Antarctica in the 1800s, uh, he said he was deluged with applications from all walks of life, politicians, military officers, young fellows, old salts. And Borum writes this, the blood tingles in response to a call to face life's hazards. I don't know if Borum would write that today. I'm a little soft. But Borum says in particular for these explorers. The blood tingles in response to a call to face life's hazard. At such a moment, the soul is at its best. That's why Jesus emphasized the hardships of his service. He stamped the cross on everything. He appeals to our passion for the risky road, and as a consequence, the knightliest souls of all the ages have thronged to his banner. If Jesus just, if they just came to the conclusion Jesus was just a good teacher, or he's a nice guy helping people where he can, they would have never died for him, been willing to die for him. But when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter says that. Jesus says, you've said well, Peter. God has revealed that to you. Now, I'm going to die. Come follow me. Eventually, Peter says, you got it. I'm there. And 10 of the other 11 said the same. And many others. If one wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, Jesus says. Put Put your own interests and desires in the background. Accept wholeheartedly a life of sacrifice. Part and parcel of the life of serving Christ. I remember, most of you know, I grew up pretty uh, totally unchurched, uh, non-biblical. I didn't know what the Bible said. It was when I was ten year, nine years old, playing peewee baseball for the Larks in southeast Houston. And I, I, had a, I met a friend. I'd just gotten to Houston. I met a friend, and uh, Freddie was the pitcher on the team. His dad was the manager and he came to uh, practice one day, and he said, uh, I-, I offered him a piece of bubble gum. You know, we all choose bubble gum. You get big, put it in your jaw when you're 10 years old. And, nine. and, and so uh, I offered him bubble gum. He says, I'm sorry, I can't. For the next six weeks, I can't chew bubble gum. That was my introduction to Catholic theology. 
he had given up for Lent bubblegum during baseball season. That's, that's a sacrifice, you know, <laughs> uh, for a 10-year-old. But there's so many kind of silly things about taking up your cross. What does that mean? You know, I got a temperamental boss. Uh, got a flat tire. Oh, got to carry my cross today to go to discount tire. But the cross is really, taking up the cross is really not referring to the ordinary troubles of life. I mean, that's just living life, right? I mean, we get sick, we're disappointed. People die. But when Jesus says you have to take up your cross, in fact, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, It's about the suffering that's endured as a sacrifice in serving the Lord Jesus. You remember what Peter did in the the courtyard when the little servant girl approached him after Jesus had been arrested. I don't know that man. He denied Jesus three times. What Jesus says here is we need to deny ourselves. I don't know myself. Myself is not important. We usually treat ourselves as if we're the most important thing in the world. And so the call to follow Jesus, we have to forget about ourselves. And We used to sing it and magnify His name and worship Christ the Lord. If one wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily. When Jesus was around 10 or 11, uh, 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 Nazareth was a suburb of Sephorus. A man named Judas the Galilean led a rebellion. He... uh, Led one rebellion, it failed. The Romans let him live. He raided the armor, the armory again. This this time, raided the uh, royal armory in Sephorus. The Romans captured him, burned the city to the ground. Thirty thousand inhabitants of Sephorus were sold into slavery. Uh, Two thousand were crucified on crosses along the road, just as a warning. No more rebellions, okay? Um, So if you were living in first century Roman-occupied Israel, you would know what it meant. You would know what it meant when someone knocked on the door to take away one who'd been condemned. It meant to carry the cross piece of the cross to the killing grounds. And the family knew it was a one-way trip. They'd never see the one taken away again. They knew the cross signified he was a dead man. And so to take up the cross meant to be prepared to face the things like things like that in being loyal to Jesus, to be ready and willing to die. 
But dying didn't always come to that for those who follow Jesus. That's why he says we have to die daily, willing to endure the worst man can endure, can bring on us to be true to him as a way of life. So coming after Jesus, Dale Ralph Davis says, coming after Jesus involves making a daily, deathly decision. And Jesus explains it a little more. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's a paradox of following Jesus. To save your life, you have to lose your life. When you try to save your life according to the any of the world's values, adopting the world's values, when you try to fill your life with pleasure and happiness without Christ, your life will be a total failure. You'll lose it. You're committing spiritual suicide, is what Jesus says here. Um, I'd speak to the young people in particular Ask any, any old person, all those into their 30s and older. You can start with me. I'm way past that. Um, I chased happiness. I chased pleasure for a long time. In my youth, before... I came to know Christ as a young adult. Every time I found happiness, I lost it. It just lasted about that long. And it was gone and I had to go chase it down again. I'd hear old people talk about, you know, outdated ideas and all those things, out of touch. Over the Hill Gang it meets every Saturday morning, uh, once a month on Saturday morning to eat breakfast. You know, just it's been so long since we've been young. What do we know? Uh, that was some of my thoughts about the old fogies then, and now I am one. And I'll just tell you, your game plan won't work. It doesn't work. There's no happiness. There's no lasting joy. Like chasing the wind, Solomon said. It's like grabbing at the wind and you're empty-handed and eventually you'll get tired of running and chasing. You'll get depressed. Life will become vanity, empty. But when you're prepared to say, Lord Jesus, take my life and let it be, consecrated to thee. You'll save it. You may not know what all that entails. The night I was saved, if I would have known 50 years later I'd be standing here, I probably would not have uh, gone down front <laughs> answering some altar call. I, you don't know what that entails. You don't know how you'll fare in Jesus' call on your life. 
But you do have the promise that He will go with you wherever He calls you. And He will enable you to do whatever it is that He calls you to do. And you may say, I can't do it. No, you can't. But just being willing to take up your cross and serve Him, yielding your life to Him, telling Him, do with me whatever you want. Look, you can't come to Christ and give Him most of it. You can't hold your, uh, your, your, your fingers crossed behind your back and, and accept for. You come to Him with your life. Not knowing what that means. But loyalty to Jesus will have its reward. Look at verse 26. Well, verse 26 gives you the, the other side of disloyalty. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What Jesus says here is if I'm ashamed of him today, he'll be ashamed of me then. You know, if in my life, if in your life you disown him, even though you're confessing him with your lips, the day will come when he can do nothing but disown you. And we're all moving toward that day. There is reward. Loyal to Him. Whoever will, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And those who fail to give complete allegiance to Christ will be put to shame. Therefore, evaluate your present life in light of He's coming in His glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Everything in this world will be turned upside down value-wise when the Lord Jesus returns. He'll return and the righteous will be rewarded. The evil people, the unbelievers will be judged. He'll judge the living and the dead, the great and the small. And every knee will bow. Then he says, verse 27, I'll let you figure out what it means. I know I'm supposed to tell you, but, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That can't mean the second coming, right? All those folks who are standing there are dead. So it's not the second coming. They didn't see the kingdom of God. Some would say, some even write about that. Um, some will say it's the transfiguration which happens next and Jesus in his glory and Moses and Elijah and God's speaking from heaven. Some say it's the resurrection or the ascension as he goes off to the right hand of the Father. Some say it's the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. That's seeing the kingdom of God. Or the spread of the church in the book of Acts. That's seeing the kingdom of God. A recognition. Some would say that's recognition. Remember Jesus says, if I do these things by the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God is upon you. You're in the midst of it. 
Some say that. It's already come. Not yet completely, but it's already come. I thought about um, uh, John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There are some, he says, standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's some who need to be saved in this passage. And they must be born again to see the kingdom of God and then to enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus told. So I don't, I don't, some also say this is talking about 40 years from then when the Jerusalem is destroyed. And that's the kingdom of God coming. So here's what R.C. Sproul says at, at the end of all of this. There were plenty of incidences where the kingdom of God broke in through visible force. And he lists Transfiguration, Resurrection, Ascension, Pentecost. These happenings made it clear to his own disciples that what they were counting on was indeed a reality and they could afford not to be ashamed to be called his followers. Just kind of, there it is. I'll let you determine that. The question is, are you ashamed to be called his followers? Do you shrink back when the pressure is on? No, I'm not ashamed. I just don't want to get baptized. Or, no, I'm not ashamed. Uh, I'm kind of nervous to stand up in front of everybody and proclaim. So I've turned that into a question. Nervous to stand up and proclaim the glory of Christ and what He's done in your life? Or maybe you're just not ready to take up your cross and give yourself up. I understand that. But you need to know that verse 26 says there are eternal consequences to being ashamed of Christ. There are eternal consequences of refusing to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow Him. You could lose your soul. And that's eternal. No turning back. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus today, is it not a mystery to you why you? Why? How is it that, um, how is it that your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers just don't understand what your life is all about and what you're saying to them about why you might live a little bit differently? Why do you have such a conviction that Jesus is the Messiah? Why are you willing to spend and be spent like Paul if you are? To commit your destiny to the claims that are in this little book here that we have in our laps? Many factors played into you coming to Christ. You know, uh, but it's not because 
your girlfriend or boyfriend wanted you to come to church, not because um, maybe your mom or dad just gave you no other choice for the longest and you just kind of got stuck with that and so now you're in the habit and you're still coming. You know, not because some Christian apologist online convinced you uh, uh, and you kind of bought his argument. Coming to Christ requires a conversion. And only God converts. That doesn't mean we don't come by faith without thinking about it. But you can't think your way into the kingdom of God. God has to bring you into it. So you say, well, okay, if that's true, what do I do if I'm not a Christian? You know, it's not turning over a new leaf. It's not um, changing your attitude. It's not uh, what I'm doing. It's not very satisfying, so I need to try something else. You can do all that and still not be a Christian. God will convert. Cry out to the Lord. Ask Him, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Or you can just walk away. Let the devil, uh, remember our parable of the soils, let the devil just take the seed out of your heart. Forget about it until the next time and hope there is a next time. But if you tell the Lord, you come to the Lord Jesus, you say, I want to believe in you. That desire to... um, Know Him at all is an indication that God is at work. So here's what you do. You deny yourself and you come to Christ and plead for His mercy, turning from your sin, turning to Him, denying yourself, and giving Him your life. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there's no other way to get to the Father except through Him. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Father, it's becoming clearer and clearer as Jesus teaches His disciples who He is and whose is His. And Lord, I pray that each one of us are coming closer to understanding it fully, knowing that one day we'll see the Lord Jesus face to face and we'll understand it. Much better. Lord, convict your people to be deniers of themselves. And Father, convict the lost that they might see Christ in all of his glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.